Hey, science nerds, welcome to Beyond the Abstract, a podcast dedicated to discussion of the coolest cutting edge basic science research papers in a way that just about anyone can understand. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to episode three of Beyond the Abstract. Today, we have another special guest with us. She comes all the way from Maine. It's cold there right now. I'm sure. It's 14 degrees. Oof. Oh, God. You can like chill your wine outside, essentially. <laughs> no need for the wine fridge that yeah. you bought two weeks ago. <laughs> so we have the Lindsay Avery Fitzsimons here with us. Lindsay, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do, where you go to school, some of your science? Yeah, so I am starting my fifth year as a PhD student through the University of Maine, but I am physically located at the University of New England, which is Maine's only medical school. Mm -hmm. Um, So I teach there as an instructor of gross anatomy and histology and also do my research three days a week. Um, And it's a really, really great combo. I really, really have a really good gig right now. So it's a combination of working with like the very fresh first year medical (laughs) students who are really still in the phase where, you know, it's all about, I really want to help people and they haven't yet been like burned. (laughs) I hate to say it, but I think it's, I think it's normal. And I think it's, I don't know, you guys are the clinicians, but Mm -hmm. I think, I think there's an important. Clinicians in training, I should say. (laughs) Well, I think it's important to go through a period where you really like break down in order to sort of foster whatever that inherent intrinsic commitment to, Mm -hmm. you know, working with people is. That's true. I have a breakdown like every day and I guess I'm still doing this. (laughs) (laughs) Quick story time. (laughs) So Ellen and I this past Wednesday had an exam in our cell biology class. Mm -hmm. Tuesday, at around 4 p.m., I had not yet started studying for this oh, exam. Oh, God. Me, at 4.30, I decide that I want to go to an Ariana Grande concert. The Ariana Grande concert is in Brooklyn. I live in Philadelphia. <laughs> we get a text at 4.30 p.m. from Derek. Is it insane if I go to Brooklyn tonight for an Ariana Grande concert? And... Our only response is Brooklyn, New York? Question mark. <laughs> like, is there some like Brooklyn outside of Philadelphia, like ten minutes away that we just like don't know? About? If that was the only possible rational explanation. Yes. Four forty-five. I'm leaving lab to catch a train to Brooklyn with my roommate to see an Ariana Grande concert. We get to Penn Station. The first thing we do is buy beer in a cup and drink out of a straw. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. Because you got to be classy. Yeah. yeah. You can't just drink it out of the cup. No, that's like, I'm not, I'm not an animal, Lindsay. No. (laughs) We then obviously have an amazing time at Ariana. She's like my queen. I love her to death. But the thing is, we had to end up taking a midnight mega bus back to Philadelphia. (sighs) Gosh. I went to sleep at 3 a.m. And uh, then I had my exam at 10 (laughs) (laughs) o'clock. I'm surprised you were able to get tickets at that late stage in the game you were tracking ticket prices i feel like in order to be prepared yeah but i spiritually was not prepared. yeah 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 i like 100 percent was not going when i woke up in the morning and you also weren't academically prepared (laughs) (laughs) 
I finished the test first in like 150 people. It's not because I need the material. <laughs> Let's just say that. Thank you, next. <laughs> Thank you, next. That's actually what I wrote down for half the questions since I didn't know what they were asking. Did they know about the queen? I was just like, if the instructors knew why I failed, they'd be like, oh, that's totally reasonable and understandable. Yeah. A 60-year-old cell biologist knows that if Ariana is in like a 300-mile radius, none of us can be expected to do work. Exactly. Extenuating circumstances. Yeah. For sure. You know, a family matter. (laughs) So, Lindsay, what's your research on? I study the development of the heart, but specifically how a little tiny organelle called the primary cilium, how that controls the way that the heart develops. Yeah, which is perfect for our paper this week Mm -hmm. that I chose, since it has to do with both the heart and primary cilia. The name of the paper is Primary Cilia Defects Causing Mitral Valve Prolapse. And this paper came out of the Norris Group at the Medical University of South Carolina. It was in collaboration with a bunch of other groups, the Levine Group, the Milan Group. It was published in Science Translational Medicine just this past May, 2019. So it's really hot off the press. Yeah. And the paper looks into primary cilia and this disease called mitral valve prolapse in relation to how cilia might control something we call the cell matrix. The cell matrix is something that we think of as the infrastructures that cell can attach to. The really well-known cell matrix proteins are things like collagen, hyaluronic acid. (laughs) Do you know where that comes from? Hyaluronic acid? Uh Uh-uh. It comes from like the gobble in a turkey. Oh my gosh, for like skincare? Oh, for skincare, yeah. Yeah. That's why I feel like everyone knows about hyaluronic acid now, because it's like all the extracellular matrix things I think have been like taken over by the skincare industry because they're like, oh, the things that make your cells strong are the things that can like boost your skin appearance. So it's it's funny that it's all popping up now. Everyone knows about <laughs> collagen too. The matrix is everywhere throughout your entire body. And again, it's what gives actual structure to your tissue. And the matrix, depending on the type of tissue, whether it's your skin or your heart, the makeup, the composition differs. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like the scaffold of a building. Right. Mm-hmm. So no matter how you cut the building in half, you're always going to have these iron rods that are holding it together mm-hmm. and you're and they're going to be you know, around the outside and on the inside. And mm-hmm. I guess the heart's like that, too. Right. Yeah. And it's important for this scaffolding to work properly. Right. It's the foundation to a good house, a good building. It's bad. Mm-hmm. It's going to collapse. Yeah, and, we don't want that. Yeah. And when you age, you want to make sure that that scaffold stays pretty strong. And that's one of the problems with our bodies is that. We, we sag. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, morbid. That's why we need some of that hyaluronic acid. Yeah. They used to inject it, I think, in um, in knee arthritis patients. Yeah, I feel like they try to inject it anywhere they can, kind of. No, it's just <laughs> under your uh, eyelids and in your cheekbones. Stop looking at me when you say that, Derek. <laughs> I, I'm here for it, you know. We're welcome to be sponsored by some hyaluronic acid producer yeah, yeah. if you're listening. <laughs> and the other thing we want to talk about is primary cilia. So like Lindsay said, primary cilia are little finger-like projections that come out of the cell. We think of them as sensors that relay information from the outside environment to inside the cell. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, we often in the science world talk about them as cell organelles, but what are organelles? Cells have all different kinds of pieces that make up their function, just like we have different organs. Um, cells have all different kinds of things inside of them and outside of them that help them to function and communicate with the environment. But primary cilia are actually really, really small. They're mm -hmm. about one to three micrometers in length which is like smaller than the tip of the finest pen um, and even smaller than that. Yeah. It's like just the tip of the pen, right? <laughs> <laughs> but size doesn't matter. Even though they're, they're small, but they play a big, big role. role. Huge role. A huge role. Huge role. Super important. The analogy I like to use is that they're really like the antenna of the mm -hmm. cell. Mm -hmm. Although I realize now, like I'm a millennial, but now do people even know what an antenna is? Like nothing has an antenna anymore. No. Cars still have antennas, I think, right? Do On the back, know? like, <laughs> no, I'm old, <laughs> old and sagging. I don't think you'll see a Tesla with an antenna. Yeah, we're just like, okay, silent. but that's like not a fair example. <laughs> Anyways, so they are like the antenna of the cell. It's basically the cells sticking out this little projection, this little finger that is sort of sensing the environment around it. So it, this little antenna um, interprets chemicals that are in the environment around it. It um, senses um, what we call mechanics, so the movement of fluid or cells around it. Um, and it actually contains inside of itself like all of this wiring. And that wiring is directly connected to the nucleus or the brain of the cell. Sometimes that results in um, changes in cell division. So the cell divides more rapidly. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that can cause the cell to die, but it also can cause the cell to change many of its behaviors. For example, it can um, tell the cell that it needs to produce more extracellular matrix mm -hmm. or less. Mm -hmm. Especially in the context of development where there's a lot of things going on Primary cilia are really important in relaying these signals. And actually, it's been found in previous studies that if you mess up primary cilia, you can actually reverse what side your organs are yeah. on. So your heart, which is normally on your left side, might be, end up on your right side. It's essentially like Google Maps for the cell. Yeah, totally. So small but mighty, like we said. Or MapQuest in the cell if you're... <laughs> if you're driving a car with an antenna. If you're still printing out your directions. <laughs> What's a printer? <laughs> <laughs> and the last thing we want to talk about is heart valves and mitral valve prolapse. We think of heart valves as the gatekeepers of the heart. The heart has different chambers, different rooms, and valves are essentially one-way doors to make sure that blood flows in only one direction. And when these valves become defective, as in the case of mitral valve prolapse, the valve can actually go in two directions. So heart starts backing up, going in the wrong direction. And over time, this puts a lot of strain on the mm -hmm. heart. You can end up with heart failure symptoms. You can have arrhythmias where your heart isn't beating correctly. Mm -hmm. And all of these things together increase your risk of dying from sudden cardiac death. So not great. Yeah. Size matters in the valves too. Yeah. Size matters everywhere. Because you can't just have like a really thick door and expect it to shut in a regular frame. Mm -hmm. yeah. You have to have like just the right size. It has mm -hmm. to fit perfectly. Perfectly. <laughs>
and not to bring up aging once again, but your heart is going through a lot of this mechanical stress that we're talking about. It's dealing with a lot of blood flow that's fairly high pressure. So that extracellular matrix we're talking about, the foundation of these valves is getting sort of weaker um, and less effective as we age. And there actually has been some precedence in connecting the role of primary cilia to the cell matrix. There's this one specific kind of kidney disease where the kidney has like a bunch of these cysts. And essentially what they found in previous studies was that these cysts are caused by messed up cilia. So essentially these authors, part of their motivation is they're wondering, could the same process be happening in heart valves? One of the reasons they thought that is that a lot of these patients with this kidney disease also have symptoms of mitral valve prolapse. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of overlap. Um, and actually the changes in the valve look similar to the changes in the kidney. So they think maybe it's a similar process. And they're wondering if primary cilia are also the cause in the valve disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think most of what we know about primary cilia is from what we know in kidney disease. Mm -hmm. That's where they first discovered in the human body primary cilia. Mm -hmm. Actually, do you guys know about how they discovered cilia in general? No. no. So story time. Story time. <laughs> Love story time. Originally, they discovered cilia through electron microscopy, mm -hmm. but they thought it was a vestigial structure, meaning like, so we don't, we're technically born with a tailbone, yeah. right? But we don't have tails. Yeah. So we found out that we had somebody used a special kind of microscope and saw these little fingers, but just assumed that they weren't really important for anything. Yeah. And that was actually really early on in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Everybody just sort of forgot about it. In the mid-1950s, there were these farmers. They noticed that their sheep were giving birth to babies that only had one eye, oh. um, the cyclops oh eye. God. Oh, my gosh. They eventually were able to link it back to this plant that contains a chemical called cyclopamine, or oh. what they've come to call <laughs> Basically, they had to figure out what this chemical was, but it inhibits something that's present on the cilium. So that's how they made the link. We love a good origin story. Yeah, we do. Powerful. The next comic book. <laughs> it's very silly. science fiction, though. Don't you yeah, think? yeah, it is. Okay, so the question that these authors had were, do primary cilia play a role in mitral valve prolapse? And is this happening potentially by way of regulating the cell matrix? So they decided to investigate this in a lot of different ways. The first thing they did was to delete cilia from the mitral valves. And they can do this through a lot of really cool mouse genetics. They can control where exactly in the heart, down to the exact cell type, they want to delete primary cilia. So they decided to delete this in the mitral valve. And by having this really specific sort of deletion, they can ensure that what they're seeing is due to the mitral valve alone, not because of anywhere else in the body. And like we were talking about before, it probably wouldn't be a good idea to delete primary cilia throughout the whole body because then the mouse is going to have a hard time developing anything correctly. And we just want to focus in on the valve. Mm -hmm. As a person that studies primary cilia every day, I actually really liked the data that they showed about the length of the cilia. So people that study primary cilia, it's a very dedicated field, and they always will want to know, 
well, what's happening to the length of the psyllium? Because <laughs> I don't size queens in the psyllium field. <laughs> but it's a real biological mechanism. So typically, when cells are stressed, they will extend the length of their cilia. Mm -hmm. And that was first seen in the kidney. Again, coming back to the kidney. So the psyllium gets longer as the cell is stressed. It's sort of like reaching out its arm extra further to try mm -hmm. to regain its last like final note of the Ariana Grande concert. <laughs> <laughs> and then, well, so the cilia gets shorter prior to the cell dividing, mm. but it also gets shorter if the cilium is damaged. So these genes- Or cold. Derek, <laughs> actually they can. They've sensed changes in force, so in the mechanics, sense changes in the chemicals. They also can sense temperature. Wow, so what can't these cilia do? They can't move. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like they don't go back and forth. They don't flop around. They okay. just go. Um. <laughs> okay, but they can get shorter and uh -huh. they get shorter um, prior to the cell dividing and also if the cilium is damaged. So the genes that they target in this paper are actually genes that are associated with the dynamic inside the cilium where proteins are being moved from the base of the cell out to the tip of the cilium. Mm -hmm. Is that how they measure too, from the base to the tip? Yeah. Okay. Get every square micrometer <laughs> that you can. <laughs> it's actually from the basal body, which is like these two round objects. <laughs> They're just really trying to squeeze in every last <laughs> micron, <laughs> nanometer they can. Once they deleted the primary cilia from the mitral valve, they wanted to see the actual effects of this. And they could do this through a couple of different methods. They could do a 3D reconstruction of the valve, which is really cool. And they can also use various special stains to see the components of the mitral valve. And it's important to know the mitral valve has a very, very specific and organized cell matrix. And in mitral valve prolapse, this matrix becomes completely messed up. So using these special stains, they could first see that the mitral valves in the mice that did not have the primary cilia were thicker. They had an abnormal cell matrix in the sense that the matrix was both disorganized. They couldn't tell the layers apart and they had more of it. Mm -hmm. And through the 3D reconstructions, they could also see that the volume of the leaflets were bigger. The oh, okay. leaflets were just overall bigger and floppier. This is something relating it to humans we call myxomatous degeneration. Mm -hmm. Again, it's this matrix disorganization that results in mitral valve prolapse, where the mitral valve can no longer go in a single uh, direction. Yeah, so like you're saying, they were very similar changes in the in the specific mouse model that's also specific to the disease in humans. Mm -hmm. So does that mean they're next going to look in humans to see if they can see some of these mutations in primary cilia? Because I mean, there's a pretty large patient population that they can look into. Right, exactly. So that's what you're wondering. Okay, so we see these findings in a mouse that seem to mirror a human. Can we look in humans with this disease and see some sort of defect in cilia genes? And that's exactly what they did. So using human genetic data in a lot of different ways, they decide to see, okay, are cilia genes causing mitral valve prolapse? 
So the first genetic human study they did was looking at something called a GWAS study, a genomic study. This is looking at the DNA of patients. And in this genomic study, they look at a very, very large cohort of patients, like thousands of patients. They look at, do these patients share the same mutations in genes? And what they found here was that they actually do. A lot of these patients with mitral valve prolapse have mutations in cilia or cilia-related genes. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the first hint at okay, something might be going on here. These cilia might be contributing to mitral valve prolapse. And these genome-wide association studies are cool because you can deal with like such a large magnitude of data and then sort of pinpoint it down so you can focus more specifically on sort of the gene of interest, which in this case is the primary cilia. So the thing about these genome studies is that they're associative. They're correlative. They don't actually show causation. In order to really prove that cilia are causing mitral valve prolapse, they decide to dive even deeper and look at one specific family where a lot of the patients had mitral valve prolapse. In this family where a lot of patients have mitral valve prolapse, they again looked at their DNA for mutations. And this is really, really cool. They found that every uh, single patient with this one specific mutation had mitral valve prolapse. Yeah, it's really cool to like see you can literally look at a pedigree or a family tree. And then I think they map like three or four generations, and they see the same mutation being passed on. And at the same time where the mutations passed on also the disease of the mitral valve is passed on. I think the other piece that's cool for me is to see that they're not only are they identifying and tracking this mutation, but they are figuring out like on a map, where exactly in our genetic makeup, where this mutation is located. Mm -hmm. And that's really important clinically to be able to, you know, isolate that as a target in the future, maybe for genetic therapies or medications Mm -hmm. um, to be able to treat people that have this mutation. Yeah. I think the really cool part too, is that 100% of patients in this family with the mutation had mitral valve prolapse. So this mutation essentially has 100% penetrance. Why are you laughing at that? 100%. <laughs> That's an A+. Plus. <laughs> I've never even gotten close to that in medical school or grad school. The investigators found that this one specific gene in this family is causing mitral valve prolapse, but they don't exactly know why because Obviously, they can't go and take the valves out of these humans that are alive, you know, and see what's going on. So what they did next was really, really cool. They made the same exact mutation, but in a mouse. They wanted to see if this mouse could recapture a lot of the features in humans and then study it more closely. And lo and behold, they found that these mice with the mutation, they had the exact same findings as the humans. And they had the exact same findings as the first mouse where they deleted the primary cilia. Mm -hmm. These mice had thickened valves. They had the same disorganized matrix. And unfortunately here, (laughs) it was not a perfect fit. (laughs) Overall, this paper is really cool in the sense that it brings a lot of things they first see in a mouse to humans. And then they bring it back to a mouse to really study it closely. Yeah, so to sort of like recap what they showed 
was the first thing in the mouse was a more general deletion of the primary cilia causes the same sort of symptoms you see in mitral valve prolapse. Or are we talking about the cell matrix is disorganized, too thick of a valve. It's not a perfect fit. It's not a perfect fit. Unacceptable. And then, like we said, they were able to actually go to the human genetic studies and through many generations of a family where members of the family had mitral valve prolapse, they could actually focus in on a very specific gene that encodes for primary cilia. And they saw that mutation of this gene was likely responsible for the mitral valve prolapse in the family. Mm -hmm. They were able to go back into the mouse from this human genetic study, and they were able to mutate this gene in the mouse and see the same phenotype and the same disorganization of the mitral valve that they had seen with the human patients. And I think for Ellen and I, which both of us are really interested in this intersection of science and medicine, and for Lindsay to, you know, teaching medical students and studying heart development and talking to patients with congenital heart disease, this is just like the kind of ideal study, taking something from the bench to the bedside and then back to the bench again. Aren't you just the poster <laughs> child? <laughs> Are you getting some extra money from the medical scientist training program? I think <laughs> um, I can't, I'm not going to disclose my uh, funding sources. <laughs> I thought you were. Are you open to sponsorship? Oh, oh my gosh! Please, I'm. I'm like the mouse from the last study coming down the pole. Anyone throw any, any money, money at me? <laughs> Dollar bills flying. <laughs> I can't say I rake it in as good as J Lo, but you know. We try. Yeah. <laughs> She's going to be a reoccurring theme, isn't she? <laughs> we can't, like, talk about science without Jennifer Lopez, you know. Mm -hmm. So two... where does Ariana fit in? Uh, Ariana's, like, a gay icon, though, so obviously I stand. Yeah, yeah. We, <laughs> Is we she? must. She's, like, Cher, but, like, for millennials. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> anyway, in terms of future work, I think the investigators can bring this in a lot of different directions. This paper didn't really address when the cilia gets the signal how it really relays that information to the nucleus, yeah. the brain of the cell. And I think this pathway, the signaling pathway, is something that is potentially druggable, yeah. right? If you can activate certain parts of the pathway that aren't active or inhibit parts that are overactive, maybe we can restore some of the function to the heart valves. Because like you said, like the, the gene can be targetable but also we need to understand the mechanism of what's actually happening in terms of communication of the cilia and the cell matrix to see if there's any part of that pathway that we can target. If only there was a drug that made this nubbin grow, grow. longer. There is. Oh. <gasps> well, actually, so in when we grow the cells in culture, like in a dish, all we have to do is give them serum and they grow their cilia. But in human beings that are functioning and living and breathing and mm -hmm. drinking and partying and doing all kinds of things. <laughs> Go to not, Ariana Grande. The it's for it's not quite as simple. There's not yet a drug that targets being able to regrow the cilium. Mm -hmm. We do have a drug that can take away the cilium, which is that cyclopamine. And this sort of research into druggable targets, into developing medications for patients that have this disease, is really, really important because mitral valve prolapse, first of all, is really common. There are probably around 3 million patients in the US that get it every year, that are diagnosed with it. And currently the only solution is to cut the valve out and replace it with some sort of mechanical or potentially biological replacement 
once the disease gets so bad. And having these sort of replacements aren't exactly trivial either. Patients with mechanical replacements have to be on blood thinners for the rest of their life. This puts them at risk for things like brain bleeds, for gastrointestinal bleeds, and other sort of bleeds that can be really bad. A lot of times these patients aren't coming in to get their valve replaced until they develop symptoms. But by the time they develop symptoms, the valve has already been damaged pretty severely. So another thing that might come out of this research is understanding the genetic causes of this disease. So maybe we can catch these patients a little bit earlier too. Mm -hmm. That just about wraps up the paper, right? So as you guys know, at the end of our episodes, we like to do a little interview with our guests. So Lindsay, if you could tell us a little bit about your story through science and maybe some important lessons you've learned along the way. I've learned so many lessons the hard way, but I think that's the best way. Mm-hmm. That's my piece of advice. Learn your lessons the hard way. Yeah. It's more fun. <laughs> I feel like that's all of science too. It's just yeah. like you have to fail 40 times to get the one good result. And mm-hmm. then you're like, okay, I'm stronger. It's worth it. Yeah. It's worth it. It makes it all worth it. That one patient, you know? Mm-hmm. So my story, I have not always been a scientist. I started college as an art major and switched to exercise physiology after I took, I had to take anatomy for a figure drawing class. And I was like, wait a second, this is way more cool. (laughs) Like I'd much rather learn about what's going on underneath the skin. And so that was like a big turning point for me. And I started off my science career on a clinical track. I have a master's in clinical exercise physiology. I used to do a lot of stress testing. And then I started my PhD doing clinical research with breast cancer patients. I started my PhD in that discipline and that PhD program was not a good fit for me. So I left that institution and moved back to Maine and started over in bench work. (laughs) And I really felt out of place there. And I still do a lot of the time. I will say that bench work, I think, self-selects for people that tend to be more introverted, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. whereas clinical research really requires you to be like, to be able to interact with people Mm -hmm. um, to survive. Well, I mean, even in your research, like you said that you met and talked to patients with congenital heart disease, which is what you study. And I think there's this idea that being in basic science research, that you got to just stick to the bench. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a complete fallacy. It's important to be able to communicate your science, which I think you do really effectively, both to me and Ellen today, (laughs) which we know nothing about cilia, to you on Instagram. I think for me, that's really, I've stuck to Instagram because I'm a visual learner. And the way that I've been able to survive in molecular biology is through imagery. That's how I can understand mechanistically, analytically, what's going on at that level, mm-hmm. that level of detail, and especially because I have an art background. Yeah. So that that was a big part of the journey, and it's all been possible because I've had an incredible, incredible mentor. Mm-hmm. He is a neuroscientist, and he has spent his life studying primary cilia, and I sort of crawled into his office. I said, I have a background in cardiac physiology. And he said, well, I have something going on with this heart and you can look at that. 
Yeah. And it turned out to be this huge project. So it's been a, it's been a really great relationship. And also I think that he's pushed me to be more attentive to the molecular biology and I've pushed him to be more on the clinical translational end mm-hmm. of the science. And that's really been to, to both of our benefits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a lesson in that just because you're a student doesn't mean you don't have something to offer and that you can't teach someone who might have more letters after their name than you. Yeah. I have two master's degrees. <laughs> okay, so you do have you have the letters. letters. No, but, you no, but nobody cares about that. It doesn't, it doesn't give you more street cred. Yeah. If anything, they're like, oh, you wasted your time. I think you proved them wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. Someday. Mom, social media influencer, anatomist, histologist, Science teaches medical, communicator. Teaches medical students. <laughs> does research <laughs> you yeah. guys give give the greatest compliments like We're, the guests that come on your show you give these like really specific compliments that you know just they're our friends so we have to <laughs> no if, because they're your friends you don't have to right? <laughs> that's so true <laughs> ellen and i our favorite under hobbies listed i have roasting my friends yeah you gotta Balance. keep them humble <laughs> Size and, matters. <laughs> and can't get too big. The, the biggest lesson of all. <laughs> all right, Lindsay, it was really awesome having you on. Thank you so much for coming all the way from Maine and then coming into the Beyond the Abstract studio, aka my basement. <laughs> it was a true honor. I've been such a fan of the immunofluorescence from the beginning, and I was so excited to learn about this podcast. I was like automatically subscribe. Um, <laughs> I even watched it through the link in my iPhone when it first dropped, and you didn't have it on iTunes yet. I was like so excited. I couldn't wait. An original fan. We yeah. love it. <laughs> OG fan. They're out there. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hope to have you on again sometime. Yeah, thank you. Same so time much. next year? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Mark in your calendar. <laughs>